Welcome to Looking Backward, where we analyze an entrepreneur's past to learn about the skill set, experiences, and network that they have built over the years to put them on the trajectory that they're on now. I'm your host, Chad Sakonchik. Hello, and welcome to another episode. Today, we have Michael Gammon from Good Now. Is it Good Now Media or just Good Now? Good Now Media. Good Now Media. And Michael is actually Better Legal's pay-per-click guy or PPC guy, uh, which, you know, PPC obviously stands for pay-per-click. I just, you know, telegraphed that. <laughs> but um, I've known Michael for about a year, and he's kind of helped us uh, grow our business uh, through trials and tribulations. And, you know, sometimes the good days and sometimes the bad days, the uh, pay-per-click, kind of Google yeah. search, Bing search is a nasty animal. And... You know, it, it, it is constantly changing and you're constantly wrestling with it, figure out how much you want to bid on these things. And it, it's, a, it's a mess. And it's a complex. It's kind of fun, kind of a puzzle. I think we finally, after a year, have gotten a, a handle on it. We've got some really cool automated processes that we use. And um, I think, you know, I think you probably spend a lot less time on our account uh, doing the manual stuff than you did even like six months ago because of the tools that we've built or that you've built that we've kind of brainstormed together. Um, so why don't you, you know, kind of, you know, with that lead in, why don't you kind of tell us what it is that you do, what your, your agency is. Great. Yeah. Thank you for the awesome introduction. Uh, as you said, I, I do pay-per-click marketing. That's search engine based marketing. So that's anything Bing or Google related. That's not Facebook stuff. And so there's a lot that separates the two and kind of what makes, search attractive to me and an attractive marketing channel for businesses like Better Legal and for even local services businesses is because when someone goes searching for something, they're demonstrating a type of intent to, to go look for that service or product. And that's not available on out-of-home ads on billboards or in-home ads in um, TV, television, um, but it's uniquely available on search kind of like traditional ads that used to be available in a phone book. And so when so, someone so goes explain on, what you mean by intent and, and, and give, and give that, I know where you're going with this phone book reference. So then, then, then hit with the phone book analogy. It's the intent is that they're going searching and you know, that's a uniquely human curiosity to go and find the things that you want and need. And if you've decided to go and look in a phone book, you've decided to go look for, for some help. And that's the kind of intent that we're looking for is the person looking for a service provider. You know, if they have a need and they've already identified they need a plumber, or in our case, if they have a small business and they want to register that business with the state, I think maybe if it was a little bit of a simpler model, they would be able to find someone in the phone book to help them, an accountant or a lawyer. Uh, thank goodness for Google. To, to fill this niche because there's so many unanswered questions that in, and so many products and businesses that have popped up on the internet that have been uh, able to be found just by Google. So, so it's interesting that you say, it's interesting that you, you know, I kind of want to touch on the, the phone book thing. I had never thought about that as being an intent based, you know, searching, uh, you know, that is very parallel and synonymous with how Google works, but you're a hundred percent correct. You know, you, you don't know who a plumber is, so you go to the P in the yellow pages, and that was the first directory of, you know, and it was pay to play. 
And then Yahoo kind of took that and just put it online. And then right. Google is just directory. a one step further. That, yeah, it was you know just an online directory, not a paper directory. And then you go one step further, and Google has made it to where you don't have to – they'll just go – there are all these web pages that are out there. Instead of organizing them into a directory, Google's like, that's just an impossible task. We're going to just kind of go off and find where these people are. And, and I always loved that, you know, the newest, hottest tech companies or the newest, hottest businesses are literally nothing more than something that we've already done. And it's just an iteration. So it's Yellow Pages, Yahoo Directory, Google. It's a tale as old as time. Someone needs help with something, but they can't find who to help them with. And they're willing to pay for it. And, you know, billboards existed in Roman times to advertise their uh, their gladiatorial matches. And, you know, people forget that because, you know, it's, it's a lot more glamorous to look at the movie and gladiator and, and to not see advertisements all over old Rome. But the reality is, is that advertisements in that sense have existed for thousands of years. And this is just the latest iteration of the, the searchable ad, the directory. I had no idea that Rome was like that, but that's an interesting little factoid. We talked about what search, what intent-based marketing is. Let's talk about Good Now Media now. Great. Yeah, thank you. I um, had started an agency in 2015, pretty shortly after I graduated art school. So I, I went to school for illustration. And this is the natural progression there, the natural ne next iteration of that process. And I still feel like I'm a pretty young guy, just I'm just seven years out of college. Um, I'm, I'm about 30 years old and uh, it's taken some doubling down on my attitude and my business to take it to where it is right now. And so the first iteration Blitzer was me as a freelancer representing myself as an agency, um, you know, with multiple email accounts and I hop on the client services at blitzer.com and answer emails as David Wallace and, I do outbound calls as David. That's that's a name I grabbed from the office, by the way. For a long time, for like the whole first two years that I was uh, running Blitzer, I and I nobody was like nobody was time. like, well, David and Michael sound identical. Or did you <laughs> did you use like some kind of masking of your voice? I, I'd make my voice more nasal when I was talking as David. I'd God, go uh, okay. I mean, hi, this is David Wallace. <laughs> that. I, okay, that's I've never heard. Like, okay, yeah, sorry. That's something that I learned. That. <laughs> that's something that I learned from my mom, who works from home, who has her own business, and so she, when people would call her as a, you know, and she would represent herself as a customer service rep, her own business as a CSR, she would, didn't want to give her own name because, as the owner of the business, people feel like they can flex uh, on the owner and, and get discounts or, you know, manipulate them. Whereas okay. you can pass the buck as a CSR, a customer service rep and say, Oh no, that's not in our policy or, Oh, I'll pass it on to my boss or we'll let them know. So especially for difficult conversations, that was a really helpful tactic for me. Um, you know, what's interesting is I wonder with all of this uh, kind of, you know, 
Apple is getting more advanced with Siri and they're making Siri sound more natural. And so is Google. They're making the robotic voices sound more natural. And with all of this AI stuff, I wonder if there's going to be a situation where there's going to be a product release where I can answer the phone and just change my voice and maybe make it a woman. Maybe make, maybe, you know, like put a different accent on it so it sounds like it's different people. I wonder if that is a future okay. phantom product that might exist that where one person can pretend they're five people and just look like a bigger company. I wonder if that, I wonder if that is going to be something that's on the horizon. Looking like a bigger company was what I wanted. I really wanted that. And this was a simple way for me to do it. And, you know, like I had, thought about what you're talking about, maybe speaking through like a Darth Vader vocoder or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, but it didn't really pan out in the way that I thought it would. And it actually required a lot of energy to be answering to email inboxes and sorting them out. I mean, I was answering them from the same, virtually the same terminal, but. So I had set up the client services email. That was David's email. And I had my own email and I have two numbers, you know, the, the client services number, um, redirects to my own. It was like a ring central number. And I had just, I had tried to do a lot of cold calling and outbound marketing and stuff like that. And it ended up being more trouble than it was worth for me at the time, because I ended up getting a lot of my work through online platforms like Upwork and Elance, which is actually where we met. So we, Correct. did yep. we meet on Upwork? Yeah. Um, I think you were, ref I was referred to you by yeah, Lori. Yeah, that's but, correct. But I met her on Upwork. That's true. So I had, but I think, I, but I think I'm the one that told her about Upwork. So it's kind of oh, roundabout. So. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we sort of connected through the Upwork thread. It, it ended up being that all of that effort that I put into being David, a lot of it was focused on getting on Elance or Upwork every single day and sending out RFPs. Uh, so I probably sent out- And an RFP you know, is a request for a proposal. Yeah, sending out answers for a request for a proposal. Um, and so, you know, Upwork gives you 60 credits per month as an agency. And at the time, I think they gave you 40 credits per month as a, a freelance user. And my goal was to max, max out my credits. So okay. apply to every single, if someone mentioned Google ads or Bing ads or search or SEO, uh, I, I was aware of you know, my need to specialize, but I was also just gonna apply for pretty much everything that I could do. And uh, I, I had good success. I, I do really well on Upwork. Okay, so why, why did you, um, okay, so we've kind of kind of go, gone in middle of the road. Let's, let's kind of mm -hmm. recalibrate this where uh, so back. you do you do search based marketing and you strictly do that. Is that what GoodNow Media does? And is what's different what's different from Blitzer to GoodNow Media? Why are there two different companies now? Oh, okay, yeah, great. Thanks for bringing me back. That's a good question. Um, so the difference is is like I said, Blitzer was sort of uh, an approximation of what an agency looks like with me pretending to be multiple people, and GoodNow is the natural iteration where now. Five years later, I actually have the connections and I have a bunch of subcontractors. And so it's not just me anymore. I have a lot of resources to, to rely on. So even though I don't have any full-time people, I have about eight contractors that I, subcontractors that I use a lot. So, so basically time. it used to be you trying to get any and all work. Now it's 
you're more mature in the market and you know who to go for what. And so you just, someone says they need something. You say, yeah, I can handle it. You go yeah. get the right people to do it. And that's, and that's kind of how the new model works. Yeah. And especially because I have uh, been able to focus on pay-per-click. Now I've got a great SEO guy who has his own agency who works on it as if he's a part of my own team. I've got web designers, I've got Facebook marketers and, and so own. good now is not just online. It, it's just full online marketing. You can do, you can create a website, you can do search engine marketing. You can do, I assume Facebook marketing now. Um, why, why don't you give us like the full gamut of everything that y'all do? Yeah. I'm prepared to do all that stuff. Our, our unique value prop is to be able to provide the search engine marketing for Bing and AdWords along with a hosted marketing website. That's all the landing pages with, you know, fast loading, Cloudflare support, and all the appointment setting tools that you need for a lead generation based business. So, okay. Okay. So, so in a nutshell, it's, you might be, and, you, and so we're probably a different type of customer than your, than your right. other customers. Your customers are probably more of the local businesses yes. that don't have an online presence yet. And they're going to need, they, they know that they need it now. They know what Facebook marketing is. They know what Google uh, search ads are. They don't really have landing pages. And you're just like, okay, cool. I'll just handle that whole aspect of the business for you. And you just provide the work and I'll just send leads your way. And the website has, tends to be a huge pain point for businesses like this, that they don't get updated off enough. So rolling in the cost and the design and the updating and all that stuff of the website into the marketing cost just makes sense. To not have to pay two separate vendors to communicate, not to have to pay a separate vendor to do SEO and to coordinate with your marketing team for landing pages. And to have your marketing team doing the website, it, it has its advantages in that I and my team can be updating landing pages on the fly. And I have personally developed, or you know, my company has personally developed some WordPress plugins that work specifically and particularly well with um, search engine marketing. And so at Better Legal, you and I have built some of this stuff that have been become the first iteration of the plugins that I built for WordPress. So to get back to good now, it's I focus on search, but I do the, the roll-up websites. Uh, I do Facebook ads if it's requested. I do SEO if it's requested. The, the change is essentially that now I get to focus on strategy. And every time I sign a new client, my life doesn't get more hectic and more crazy with another meeting and another you know, set of demands and expectations to set. So I've pretty much streamline the process of onboarding at least local services clients. And, you know, I've been prepping for this for a few years and, and the rollout in 2019 has been well received. Uh, I did the brand switch over like two and a half weeks ago and we signed our first clients that week. So, and right now we're in the process of getting everybody off of the old Blitzer accounts onto GoodNow Media and getting them onto new payment plans, which is a struggle um, for a lot of our clients because they're having to justify higher prices, mm -hmm. um, but they're getting more for it. So as that conversation comes up, um, many of them are happy to hear that they're getting more support and more people on the team and more eyeballs. And 
websites if they want them and if they want to roll in Facebook and stuff like that too. So I'm really happy about where I'm at right now and, and it being the natural progression of um, faking it. And I'm starting to feel like I'm making it. Okay. So let's, let's, um, so we get, I like that we touched on the blitzer kind of evolving into the good now media. And I want to roll back to that, um, mm -hmm. you know, towards the end of this, but um, so the ultimate culmination of what you do now, which is, which is brand new, I guess in the last month um, or, or very recently, good now media is the culmination of all your skills and what you've been working on uh, to where now you can provide this full breadth of online marketing to anybody that's in your wheelhouse, which seems to be a local service um, type of, of or company. So Anything how did, can, yeah. so how, how did you get started and let's, let's talk about, let's go back in time and let's kind of move back, uh, back here. So we have, if we're going to talk about my start, we always have to talk about my parents because they're both very entrepreneurial. My mother uh, runs a vacation rental company along with their sisters in Europe. Um, they're based in the U.S., but they run um, vacation rental management in Italy, Paris, and in London, uh, along with you know a smattering of their vacation rentals across the globe. We're talking about something like on the order of 300 or more vacation rentals, probably a, over 100 in Paris and a hotel there, and probably about 80 in Rome and probably about 80 in London as well. And how, and how long ago did this exist? So they started the business in 2002. Okay. So before Airbnb or like right as Airbnb was entering the market web, they were a no name back then. It was VRBO and, you know, uh, TripAdvisor was around and it was VRBO and what else? There was another service. Yeah, so VRBO was like the original original that's been around for, I think, as long as the web's been around. Um, right. As far as I know. And then HomeAway bought HomeAway, um, all right. of them. HomeAway bought VRBO. HomeAway's a local Austin company. Um, HomeAway bought VRBO and BenBreakfast.com and like all of the European versions. They basically kind of created an umbrella company and then bought all of the little niche companies that serve different markets and different specific, uh, you know, whether this is for skiers, this is for bed and breakfast, like they bought all of them up and then created this, you know, try to get them all on the same booking platform, offer, try to streamline all the services. And, and that's what they eventually sold to Expedia. But uh, yeah, okay. So your mom did this vacation rental thing uh, yeah, 20, it's a 15, whole family 15 effort. years ago, 15 it's years a whole ago, family effort. Yeah, okay. this is like my whole family. My aunt runs the Paris version. My other my uncle ran the London version. I'm sim oversimplifying because you know how complicated families are. My mother and other aunt ran the Italy version. And then it, it ended up being a big business, you know, not huge, but like 25 people. Across, yeah. you know, across the world, distributed teams, some in Paris. And why did they why did they do this in Europe? Or is this where you're from? So my family, my mother's dad was in the Air Force. And so as adults, the children of that family, all my aunts and uncles, ended up um, scattered across the world. And they also have this strong background and language that 
they had grown up in Rome or they'd grown up in Paris or London or in Germany. And they have a unique cultural influence and in their careers in technology, a lot of them had ended up in marketing and in hotels. And so when the tech bubble burst in 2001, they were all sort of looking and seeing, you know, the writing on the wall and looking to see what they could do. And a vacation rental at the time was um, still very low barrier to entry, but there wasn't a whole lot of competition there. And the value prop in the industry for individual vacation rentals and management companies wasn't fully developed yet as experience marketing or individualized accommodations. Uh, vacation rentals felt like hotels with a kitchen, at least service-wise, for a long time. Or and, and a lot of time they were lacking until the industry sort of caught up on what it meant to to host tourists. Uh, so okay, you, so so you had so so they created this business uh, mm -hmm. back in 2001, 2002. Um, and, and how how was how were you exposed directly to this? So you know, as a child, I was, I was still a kid then in 2002, I didn't, hadn't even entered high school. So, but my mother had taken us over to Italy twice a year from then on, basically. And, you know, I had visited Paris a couple of times and I, I'm very fortunate to have been able to go over there. And yes, we did vacations and saw museums and I was a little brat some of the time. And, but at the same time, we would do pseudo business trips like go over to meet owners of apartments and then bring our camera setup our multi-camera setup with all our special lenses and photograph the apartments and bring um staging materials like throw pillows and silk flowers and and, and so you were exposed in middle school or in you know sixth yep. seventh eighth grade to essentially airbnb style marketing like before yeah, 10 years, really. a full decade before Airbnb was even and existed, I think. I think I don't think they were, I don't think they existed until 2008, 10, or 12. This um, is before Airbnb, yeah. Yeah, way, 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 way before. So, okay, so they, you're doing this thing that, you know, it's interesting because we talked about iterations earlier. And so Airbnb is just an iteration of what y'all were doing. Um, and maybe y'all, you know, didn't know that the market was going to get as big as it, it did, or, you know, you, you, you fall into these tell. opportunities and yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, so, it was hard to tell. And so, and so you got to specifically stage places, take photos, write up things, go meet the people. And you were exposed oh, to that whole blast. part of the, the industry. What, so what happened after that? So I was exposed to the human element a lot. And then at home, when we'd be at home, my mom worked from home. So if I would come home at 2 p.m. from school, she'd still be working in her home office. And, and where did you that live? Was, um, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. So from Boston, your mom was managing hundreds of, of Airbnbs, essentially, in Europe. Yep. And she how how, she, how, did, how did she do that? She'd be Just on the phone. Italy. Yeah, and she'd be on the phone. She had an international line. She'd call out from Skype. She'd be calling out to owners and managers in Italy and writing emails in Italian to the Italian owners and setting up those relationships and 
setting up leases in Italy so that she could get a long-term lease and then sublease it. And, wow. You know, okay. it, she's fluent in Italian. My, my aunt is fluent in Italian. And, and I think, you know, maybe five more languages. They're really um, savvy women. And they had been, like my mom had been a VP marketing for a huge digital printing company called Atex, which doesn't exist anymore. But they produced the print uh, software for industrial printers when they were the size of a room. Instead. Okay, so that's before the Airbnb. That's before the Airbnb. So right. I'm, I'm trying to get Airbnb. some background. Yeah, and okay. like my aunt, who my aunt, who's my mom's partner, was a VP marketing for Apple. And so these are women who saw the writing on the wall for the the tech bubble bursting right around then. They were okay. Okay, so they all had different jobs. Tech bubble burst. They got into this business. It grew. You went it, to high school. What were you doing in high school? What were you doing in college? So in high school, I was really interested in, you know, like most kids, finding out about girls and, and things like that. But I was very money motivated as a high schooler. I got my first job at 14. I was working at Stop and Shop as a cart collector and bagger. Uh, and, and I did stuff like that all through high school. I did all my extracurriculars and stuff. I did, I did everything, you know, I, I didn't do so much sports, although I was active, but I was on the newspaper and I ended up being the editor of the newspaper my senior year. I was on the yearbook and I ended up being the editor of the yearbook my senior year. I, so, so you, so here's a weird question is why were you a bagger at like a kind of grocery store instead of like kind of being an assistant to your mom? Yeah, I don't know if I had the fully developed skills to be used there. And then, so that's it's a little bit of self-doubt from me. And something to point out as maybe a, a minor perceived flaw in my family's business is that I was always a little too close to it to get, you know, to get it, at least at the time. It takes a lot of hindsight for me to come up with these insights. Um, and at the same time, if you want these things, you sort of have to ask for it. And that wasn't really something I knew how to ask for at the time as a 14 year old. Okay. So um, I just didn't do it. And, and I ended up working for the company years later, right in, in college. Um, but and what, did you, what did you do for them in college? So um, I worked a handful of jobs. I did you know, build a handful of websites in high school and, and stuff like that. And then I went, ended up going to art school illustration and I was doing their sort of admin work answering emails you might call it a reservationist someone come comes in with an email saying hey I saw this property online you know is it available um, and then I'd be responding with almost a form response and checking the calendar dates and and booking them and calling them to see if I can hold the bookings and stuff like that I and did this that for is, a little this while. is for your mom this is specifically for your mom's company that you're doing this for Yes, this is for my mom's company back in 2012 or 2011. So still not even that long ago, but I was in school. And then... But wait, I, so you were doing the... You were... Say that again. You were doing the... You were just answering emails from yeah. potential leads? Yeah, reservations, basic reservations from, from How email did you leads. do that if they were in like London, Paris, 
Rome, so, like if, you know, it, if it's coming from London, it's in English, but how are you doing that if it was in German or were you only getting the English-based leads? We were getting uh, mostly English-based leads. So a lot of our, uh, at the time, me not knowing it, we were running search ads to the US, Canada, the UK and Australia, a little bit into Beijing as well. But for the most part, our ads went to the English speaking world. And then when we get um, non-English speaking reservations, a lot of the time they were very affluent and thus spoke English anyway. And, you know, Google still had their translate tool around then um, as well. You know, it wasn't that long ago, 2011. So yeah, I was just answering emails, most of them in English. And a lot of them had form responses as well. So I learned serious email etiquette from cutting and pasting form responses. Okay, so you were, so were, were you answering emails in a foreign language through via Google Translate? <laughs> that was a rarity. I have done it. Oh, okay. yes, I've done it. I still do it to this day. Um, okay, but, but here, let's, I, I, I'm curious now about, so where are these leads coming from? You said they were coming from Australia. So you were, you were putting ads in Australia for people that were saying, you know, uh, uh, vacation places rental to stay, in Rome. vacation rent, rental in Rome, and they were coming from Australia. Yep. So we were serving. And so the you were. Book. So you were doing ads. Who was actually running those ads? So this is where it's. This is where my life story starts to weave in. Like my okay. business is that. We were hiring um, Sonny, gosh, I forget his last name. His first name was Sonny. I always remember that it was so distinctive. And he called himself the Robin Hood of pay-per-click. And, you know, steal from the rich, steal from Google, give to the poor, steal from Google, give to your business. Okay. And uh, he was running our search campaigns basically on automated. And I didn't know this at the time, but... I had been doing some of their billing and invoicing and making sure that the books looked good, very minor stuff at the time. But I noticed that Sonny was getting paid $200 an hour, which to and, me- And this is, and this is back in, this, you were in college, what year was this? This was 2012. 2012. Oh, so only seven years ago. Yeah, only seven Not years that. ago. Okay, so he was getting paid $200 an hour. Or that's what his bills would say. And- okay. I was like, I, I saw that and I was like, who could possibly get paid this much from our little business? And so I just did a little digging to find out what we were paying for. What is Google AdWords? That's what it was called. So you were time. running the books and you stumbled upon what ended up being your kind of career because somebody was making a lot of money and you were like, hold the phone, buddy. Why are you making all this money? What is this job? Pretty much. Yeah. And, and I went and I said, you know, mom, aunt. Well, so what did you discover when you dug guy? in a little bit? How did, how did that unfold? Well, I found out he was getting paid $200 an hour. And then I checked out his website to see that was like a super outdated website. And he had a link to Perry Marshall's mastermind forum. Perry, so Marshall. Perry Marshall was doing stuff way back then too, huh? Perry Marshall was the original adverts expert. He had a book out way back then and so Sonny was advertising that Sonny was like a member of his mastermind group and mm. advertised that he was you know i am certified by perry marshall and i'm up on all the technology and so i took over 
you know, I sort of said to my parents, like, you're getting, you're paying too much for this guy. Even if I spend 10 hours, I was getting paid $20 an hour. Even if I spent 10 hours. Which on is stuff, great money for a college student. Oh, it was amazing. And I could work from home. It was perfect. Um, and so I took over for him. You know, it was a simple, simple math. I'm going to spend 10 hours on it. Whereas he only spends one hour at $200 an hour. And there was a learning curve for say six months, but. And were you still making $20 an hour? Oh yeah. I was still making $20 an hour. I, I, <laughs> I didn't actually ever make more, um, with my family's business, you know, the, wow, what a bunch of Grinches <laughs> that's family businesses for you. So, um, so, okay. So, but, but in, in fairness, there was a learning curve and something would take him an hour. It took you 10 hours. So like, what, what was this yeah. 10 hours that you were doing? What, what kind of work were you actually engaging in? So I was doing, um, if you know, search engine marketing, you can see, uh, the queries that people actually search and those are in the, and so try to keep this in as in like layman's terms as much as possible. I would be finding what people were searching and adding them to bid on and regularly adjusting our bids so that we would be where we want to be in the market. Just as just the standard one-on-one stuff. Just the standard one. Why was, stuff. why was it? Well, so he, so it would take him he one hour automated. because with what automated. kind of tools? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm guessing he was using Google ad scripts, maybe something self-built or something that he got from Perry Marshall or from one of his mastermind groups. But the effect was that he- And what did the bids, and how did the bids get changed? Like what, what, why were you running the bids up or down? And just so everybody knows how this works, if, if this is kind of going over your head, I, I want to kind of try to keep this as simple so, as possible. It, how, how this works is um, in the most simplest- terms uh someone says how do i find or flowers in austin flower delivery in austin and google gets that search query and then google says to the advertisers okay who wants to bid on flower delivery in austin and guy a is like me girl b is like me and and they all say i'll pay three dollars for that bid. I'll pay $5. I'll pay $7. And then so Google says, okay, I'll take all of your uh, money or potential money and I will put your ads in order. And if they click on your ad, then you have told me how much you're willing to pay and I'm going to take that money from you. And so that is essentially how the search engine world works, except for it just happens in like a tenth of a second, like instantaneously, like Google's Google makes so much money because they have figured out a way to do this in a like a millisecond or, or, or as quickly as humanly possible. And people like us that are bidding on this don't bid after someone searches. We kind of know Google provides the data that says, this is what people are searching for. Here's all the data. Like if you want to, you know, you type in flower delivery Austin and it'll say it gets 2000 searches a month. And so you're like, okay, 2000 searches a month the average bids $3. And so you kind of make those, you know, upfront bids. And then so Google already has the kind of list of who's willing to pay what. And in a split second, they take all that information and put it in, you know, in line in the uh, search results. And this is what he's talking about. Okay. So, so you were, you were looking, so let's go back into what you specifically were doing. 
at the very most basic level, I was adding new keywords, adding negative keywords so that our traffic would be aligned to the right area. So a negative. Okay, you're keyword. going, you're going, you're going technical. For, again. Break, break <laughs> up what negative is. A negative keywords will say um, it will exclude. You know what? I've, I've got, terms. I've got a great, I've got a great example because um, so okay. one of my buddies, uh, we've talked about this, Aceable. Um, there was a guy that was running the the pay per click ads there. And he, um, aceable.com is a driver's, online driver's ed company. So if you want to get a driver's license, you're 15 years old, you want to get a driver's license in the state of Texas, you buy their online course, you get approved, then you take it to the DMV, blah, blah, blah. Um, mm-hmm. to, to, people are searching for how to get driver's license in Texas. Um, but people are also searching how to get hunting license in Texas, how to get fishing license in Texas. And so if you're paying for those bids and you're just breaking out the keywords, what he's talking about, the, the main words, you don't need to bid on what is, how do I, you bid on things like license Texas online Drivers or ahead. driving, right? But if someone's searching for how do I get a hunting license, you don't want to pay three, five, ten dollars $10 for that click because it is totally irrelevant. And so a negative and keyword is saying, worse. I want the you know, I want the license information for Texas. I want the license uh, bids, but I don't want ones that also have the word hunting or fishing. And so that's kind of how negative keywords work. And, and, and it gets even more simple than that, that like people don't know how to use Google to get their best results and will click on your ad and Google will tell you what they search to click on your ad. So I'll be reviewing these terms this was my job. Most of my job for a long time uh, was just reviewing these terms. And that, so let's say we're building on hotels or vacation rentals in Rome. Now we're we mean Rome, Italy. Well, there's a Rome, Georgia. There's a Rome, Nevada. There's a Rome, Massachusetts. There's a Rome, New York. Rome, Tennessee. And so we would have to make sure that we were excluding every one of our you know our U.S. based locations and focusing on people interested in accommodations in Italy. So that's only, you know, you can only add targeting up to a certain point. So the exclusions, the negative keywords were important. So that was a big part of the work. And then um, adjusting bids, as you said before, raising and lowering bids. And so at the time, clicks were really cheap. Yep. It's not the case anymore. Nope. the cost per click has gone up year over year over year. And so I was optimizing, I was making improvements mostly based on click volume and click through rate. So I was, I was optimizing ads for clicks, not conversions. This was before I even had some, any idea about a sophisticated way of tracking conversions. We weren't even tracking sales directly from ads. And so, and so you talk about click through rate and all this stuff. And so we got to, we got to back up again. So this, this is turning into a more technical uh, interview oh, than, than I'm used to. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's just, we're going to have to like break it down so people don't, you know, mm-hmm. get completely whooshed. Um, so uh, the click-through rate is every time there's impressions, there's clicks, uh, there's conversions, there's all conversions. Uh, an impression is someone typed in flower delivery, Austin, and your and they view your ad. Your ad has been selected by Google to be shown on the page. That's an impression. It means it has been shown on the page. It doesn't mean someone looked at it. They could be not looking at their screen, but it has been displayed. A yeah. click is 
they have clicked on the ad. Now, the click-through rate is, you know, one divided by the other, is how many times has your ad been shown versus how many times did someone click. And then a conversion can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It could mean a sale. It could mean a lead, a form fill. It could mean uh, they filled out, you know, to download this book. And that is something that you need to determine. So when he says a conversion, that could mean any number of different things to different people. Right. So we were tracking leads. If a form came in, that's what we were tracking. But because of the way uh, vacation rentals work, you had to speak to someone on the phone and then take their credit card and then book them manually into our system. We didn't have a direct click to sale funnel. Uh, so we, we lost that attribution there, but we were tracking leads. Uh, so even though I wasn't optimizing towards costs per lead, which would you know be the, the ad cost aggregated into whatever uh, it ended up being per lead, I was optimizing based on click clickability. I wanted the ads to be the most clickable in the market. And for a long time, for a few years, that really, really worked because who we were competing against in 2011, 2012 was just like you listed before, Airbnb, HomeAway, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, Expedia. And they had taken a, you know, uh, our, our approach, let's say, was the guerrilla approach, the guerrilla war approach. I was optimizing ads in our location at a very micro level. And when you looked at the time at what our competitors were running, they were running virtually the same ad in every single state and every single location. And no way. And someone is someone to, big like HomeAway and Airbnb were just running standard yep. ads. They were running standard ads. So like it, at the time you could search vacation rental in Rome and vacation rental in Las Vegas and the HomeAway ad or the Airbnb ad would be exactly the same except for the location name. They were. So they would just swap out the, the name and, and, and that's it. That's it. But at least they, they were doing that. So they what, would send them to the home specific page. about your they were sending them to the home page? Yeah, they'd send them to the home page with the the search bar already filled in for whatever location, you know, so, had come up in that search. Okay, and so what were you doing that was different? So we were sending them to our Well, what kind of ads page. were you showing? If, why were your ads better? We were uh we had experience-based ads. Um so what that means is I was selling a fantasy about what it's like to live in, to, to stay in Rome or to stay so in Paris. So it's like, have a croissant in Paris while overlooking exactly. the Champs-Élysées instead exactly. of get accommodations in Paris. Yeah, or competing on price, which is what they did. Find the cheapest accommodations now in, in Paris or Rome. And Okay, so let's talk about that real quick. So this, this is where the online marketing and search marketing gets really, really interesting. And you can go super, super deep and it can get super, super complex as, as you and I have, have realized. But when someone types something, you know, we, we did the hunting fishing license example as a negative, but when someone says they want cheap, you know, you've got your, your mom's business had probably um, a, a variance of cost that maybe was like $40 a night, $100 a night, $300 a night. So if right. someone is searching for cheap accommodations in Paris, the goal is, you know, for some reason, Airbnb is just sending them to the homepage, what they should be doing is sending them to a page in Paris with the 
max uh, price point at like $60 a night. And so, so you were hopefully not only selling the fantasy, but then as soon as they clicked, if they typed in cheap, you were sending them to a page that filtered specifically less expensive accommodations and not the more expensive ones. We were doing that stuff as much as possible, but think about this as like a small family business that yeah. had sort of Frankenstein their website together from tools. So we did our best. We would yeah. send people to the It's most no different than how we're doing with Better Legal. I mean, it, it, that, that thing was like a, a Honda Accord that is now has nitrous, a spoiler, been lowered. Like yep. it, it's a Frankenstein monster and we're gonna have to rebuild it. And when, when we do, we will take all of this knowledge that we've, we, you know, learned and we will make a better, fresher, leaner, meaner site. But right now our site, you know, was a standard, it doesn't even have a database behind it. You know, it's not even a database driven site. It is a flat file driven site. And, you know, we've, we kept bolting things on. So, you know, but that's how businesses grow, right? Is you like keep bolting things on until you're like, okay, Build what works refresh. and then improve on it. Yeah. Build yeah, yeah. whatever works. The lean startup, I can't recommend enough. Build an MVP that just works that your customers need and then improve on it. What's and the name of that author? Do you remember off the top of your head? The lean startup? Oh, I'm not yeah. sure. Well, just Google or, or Amazon, the lean startup that uh, I agree with them hundred percent. It's a, it's a great book. It's it's an even easier audible listen. Yeah, it is. And that one and the EMF, those are my two. But, um, so we were sending them to the most specific pages. We were doing our best to sell experience on ads and, and customer service and ads. And so where our value proposition, our unique value proposition was positioned in the market at the time was that we had a higher level of service and care that you could get from any private Airbnb. And so at the time, Airbnb was being slandered by the hotel uh, hotel industry as like, these are all the horrible things that could happen at your Airbnb yeah, because it's yeah. not professional accommodations. And those stories came out and they were popular in the media because Airbnb was, was uh, on the mind of the, the public. And so people were concerned about arriving at a strange place in a foreign country and realizing that they had been taken for a ride and that someone had taken their credit card and they arrived at, you know, someplace and no one was there to meet them or, you know, any number of scams that could happen. Sure. Uh, or, you know, if someone owns a single apartment and they're renting it out as an Airbnb, let's say in Rome, and we just went through a heat wave in, in Rome and in Europe, if an air conditioner breaks, how does that individual only has a single apartment move someone into a new place where there is air conditioning? Much less if they're renting it out because they're on vacation, how are they going to get a repairman in there to repair it? And so those are situations that have come up time and time again in running a business where we have been able to accommodate in strange situations much better than any individual could if they were just renting out their apartment or their home. Because that, that still is a problem. It's still like a problem. if you're running an Airbnb, there's no group or, you know, property manager or whatever, you know, there, there are probably those little niches here and there, but you know, if I'm running out my, my apartment, then something goes wrong. That's, that's something you have to react to and not be proactive about. 
So, so that that's, was that's an interesting. So that's that's something that y'all did kind of naturally. Oh yeah, we did that naturally from the very beginning, and you know it it, it showed on our website. Besides having the reviews, you know you could fill out a contact form and be contacted by a real person and, and within an hour, not like on Airbnb where people, you know, you'd send out 20, you know, requests and maybe you'd get 10 back within a day. And then maybe, you know, some of those would work out and some wouldn't. And this I think that that's getting. so important that you can, you know, um, th there's been studies done. And, and when I was working on space, if there was, uh, you know, I, I researched all of these studies in the the mentality of someone that's looking for something online when they fill out a form. You need to contact them immediately. Like, right. if, if you can get them in the first 15 minutes, you are gold. You are totally gold because they just fill out the form. You just contacted them. They're like, oh, damn, these people have it together. You're top of mind. And then, and then within an hour, you still get that. But every hour that goes by after that, the the interest level and the credibility of the company just dwindles. It's so dramatic. It's crazy. And so when we talked to Tony Jackarusso in the in the very, very first episode, you know, she mentioned, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times now, that, yeah, that their business, their their initial uh you know, you know, and Allison and Allison in the in the um in the last episode. She, you know, these leads are coming in and all they're doing for their, you know, third party clients is answering within an hour. And because you're doing that, they are providing value immediately and, sh and, and making that business more money by default, doing literally nothing more than answering the phone and contacting the person back within an hour. Like that is so, so, so important. It's it's insane. And what Tony was doing, this is the same business, like the vacation rentals. They didn't own these properties in Europe. These were owned by somebody else who wanted them rented on short-term leases, who that's couldn't a good, answer them within an hour. That's a good point. I didn't, I didn't even put that together. It's a sales and marketing business. That's what Tony was doing. And, and so, you know, the women in my family had just nailed it. You know, they had come from sales and marketing and tech and had reapplied it. And, they were, you know, reducing the wait times for, for leads and increasing the customer service uh, experience and increasing okay. the experience with travel. So, so you were doing $10 or $20 an hour marketing for oh. them. We learned about what you did. Now let's talk about how you exited that. And I assume you went directly from that to Blitzer? Uh, yeah, I, I set up my company at that point. Um, you know, Didn't my you work for an agency at some point in time? I did. So Let's talk about that real quick. Time for a sponsored message. Get your LLC from betterlegal.com. The state filing, EIN filing, and operating agreement for one price as fast as your state will allow. Also offering registered agent service and ongoing state compliance. Let Better Legal handle formalities so you can handle the actual business. So um, I had set up, you know, I had started freelance while I was working for my parents' company. And that's sort of how I grew because the family business couldn't accommodate full-time digital marketer. So um, after a few years of freelancing, representing myself as Blitzer, sort of putting on two hats and pretending to be David and Mike, um, I decided to see what was out there in digital marketing in the you know, professional sphere in the nine to five world. Uh, 
So, I mean, not to brag too much, but I had gotten a lot of benefits out of being remote. I had lived in Paris doing the same digital marketing job. I lived, I traveled to Rome. I traveled around the US, um, lived in New York, lived in Arizona and Chicago. And this is like moving every six months. This is over a very short period of time. That's awesome. And then I wanted to see what I was missing because th there was burnout. And how were you finding six month leases? Or you were just finding, like, how were you finding I was, it? I was doing, uh, in Paris, I got hooked up by my family, knew, you know, sure. they had an apartment that they had leased. That, well, like, you know, what around the U.S.? How are you doing that? Um, I got an Airbnb in Chicago. So For was, six months? For six months, yeah. It was actually in the Isn't that expensive? I, I split it with my assistant at the time. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, it was expensive, but I was, I was working a lot. I was working like 80 hours a week and making decent money. Okay. Uh, but what I would like to say is that I didn't get to enjoy a lot of the travel uh, that I, I, I lived in Paris for six months and I probably worked 80 hours a week when I was there. Mm. And like, I look back on that and I think it was silly of me to do that. You know, I, I would have been much happier just throwing a lot of expenses on credit cards instead of working as hard as I did at the time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I had been back in the U.S. for a couple of years and I wanted to see what I could do in the corporate world. And, and especially, I didn't know what I didn't know about digital marketing or especially agencies. And that was one of the things that frustrated me about wearing both hats in, in the agency was that for some reason, I felt like there was a secret sauce missing, and there was. So I went back into the the you know work world, the nine to five world, or actually this would be my first foray into the nine to five world. And I wrote up my resume as if I had worked for somebody else for the past three years. You yeah, know, you were just faking it all over the place. Yeah, I was. Although I was very upfront with my employers about that, but to get past hey, HR, I'm lying to you. Here's my resume. Yeah, I was doing it to get past HR and through the Indeed filters and stuff like that. Um, That's interesting. Okay. I have found that if you say that you're a freelancer or an entrepreneur as a young person, you get a different level of perception in companies where they say, oh, we want an entrepreneurial spirit, but at the same time, they want to mitigate the risk of losing someone really great who can, under, you know, who can understand how the business operates and can go do it themselves. Dude, I agree with you 100% because I've been in that situation where, you know, I was, I was, you know, I've worked for myself for a while and then I went to the corporate, but yeah, going through that, they, they want entrepreneurs, but they want to be able to quantify numbers. So it's like when you work for a nine to five company, you can say, you know, I did this specific job and I increased revenue this specific amount. And that's yeah. what they care about. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to like rag on, on this industry, but I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be desired in the recruitment industry because a lot of the recruiters have no idea about who they are actually recruiting or what they should be looking for. And so they I just have, kind of curate uh, yeah. something I've heard like Hunter in, in our third episode, you know, I've, I've had conversations with him about just the silly stuff that, um, that recruiters put out. I'm I am actively getting recruited right now on LinkedIn in my inmail as a full stack engineer. What? I can't code my way out of a paper bag. I can. I can do little scripts here and there, but I'm not a full stack engineer. I can't stand up a Postgres database and put her in AWS instance. I know what all that stuff means. 
I can't do any of it. And yet I'm getting recruited by a recruiter as a full stamp lamp, you know, style engineer. And lamp is Linux. What is the whole lamp is an acronym LAMP. I'm not going to go into that, but, um, but yeah, so it's just like, anyway, so you, so that, that's kind of interesting. Linux, Amazon, Mondo, uh, something. Postgres, yeah. Postgres. Postgres. There's yeah. no way, there's no way that A is Amazon. <laughs> it's not AWS. Okay. I could be wrong. No, 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 no. Cause lamp is an old, older term, but anyway. Uh, um, so getting recruited. So you got, you got, you got, you got by yeah. the HR people. You talked to the agency. What did you do at the agency? So at the agency I was, and I didn't lie. I said, I, you know, I was freelancing. This was my, yeah. my full time. Yeah. And they asked me to, you know, what are you going to, they asked me to, to close all my client accounts and I did happily. I, you know, fired all my clients amicably and transitioned them off. And then I, I handled search. So the, the agency I was working for was a hotel marketing agency. So there was a real nice synergy um, between, you know, what I was doing at the time before and, and what I ended up doing at the agency. And um, I was just handling search, Bing and Google ads. And uh, I was doing a little bit of Facebook ads for them. Um, but what were they doing? What, what was the secret sauce that you had mentioned earlier that, that they were doing that you had not known about? They had processes. And more than that, they had hierarchies that made sense. And the processes that I'm talking about are like if insertion order. Um, an insertion order is when you're paying for ads, you need authorization from your client to pay for those ads because they're going to end up getting billed for them. When there's any new marketing idea or plan or test, you, you have to create an insertion order to make that media buy that has to be signed by the client. And that is essentially the client signing, yes, I'm aware they're gonna spend this money. Yes, I'm aware we're gonna get billed more for it. Um, and protecting you know, their butts so that they can make sure that they're not getting challenged you know, based on their billables at the end of the month. That was one thing that I hadn't quite understood. How do you, it was a simple thing. Like it's obvious now, you know, that I, oh, I have to get clients to sign off on, on spending any more money, but it wasn't something I was doing. You know, it, I was doing it very informally over Skype or via email. And um, so that so was- you, you really, as, an, as a freelancer, you didn't have a paper trail. So if someone sued you, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. I didn't have a paper trail. My finances were all mixed up with my personal, you know, my business finances were all in my personal finances. Oh, so, so you were a sole proprietor. I was a sole proprietor. Yeah. So to everybody, I want to, I want to, you know, disclaimer, I am not an attorney. I've just been aware, you know, I'm around a lot of this stuff a lot. So, you know, always consult an attorney is not a legal advice, yada, yada, yada. But as a sole proprietor, uh, you, you, just like he said, you mix your personal finance with your business finances. So when you make that, you know, that purchase for software, you can't write it off. When you spend money for the business or you earn money, it's going into your personal checking account, not into the business checking account. So it, it gets really, really, really messy. Um, and so that's why a lot of people choose to use an entity like an LLC, a corporation or an LP 
to have that to have that separation so you can open a business banking bank account and you can open a business bank account with as a sole proprietor you know with a dba they they do that so you can separate your personal and business finances but what we're talking about earlier with him saying he you know he was kind of informally getting sign off if someone on skype if he says hi you know i'm going to increase your spend from $10,000 a month to $20,000 a month and they're like yeah cool no problem and he does that and it goes poorly. And then they're like, we want our money back. You screwed us. He's right. like, well, no, I got this sign off. And they're like, prove it. We're suing you. So now right. they sue him personally because he doesn't have a legal entity, a business. He doesn't have an LLC, a corporation or an LP. He has a sole proprietorship, which is just him. So they're suing him. If he owns a car, he owns a house that stuff is up for grabs. And so if he loses this lawsuit for $10,000, $20,000, he has to pay for that out of pocket. Whereas if he has, has a legal entity, that provides that layer of protection where they're suing the company and not you taking your house, your you know personal checking account, your car. So I've danced cetera, with cetera. that. Risk. So yeah, like, a lot of people- I danced with it for a while. And a so- lot of people do. I didn't realize, you know, I wasn't spending, a, I wasn't managing a lot of money like I am now, but even I had an LLC, there's something you didn't say, even though I had an LLC, um, what I realized, okay, so this is the situation where I realized that I had to get out and I sort of started applying for jobs was that I had gotten to the point where I was representing a lot more clients. I had maybe two dozen clients and a few of them were spending a lot of money to me at the time. $20,000 a month. And I was running them through my own credit cards. So at smaller amounts, that was no risk to me. But at, at the larger amounts, um, we were talking about running up a credit card bill for me, a 25 year old, $10,000, $20,000 a month, and then billing the client for it. And then, you know, and that would be, I would sometimes get paid 30 days later. And so, so if you uh, got stiffed, or even if someone was 60 days late, that's yeah, I would be paying interest payments. Wow. So there was one point um, in so it's all the stuff that you that you were doing the yeah. that you you picked up at the agency and the agency kind of taught you. Would would you like so so is are the processes and in in this kind of like liability protection like the main thing that you learned at the agency or there are other things? I learned uh, I learned about um, how to to have responsibility when someone else is doing the work, what it means to do QA, what it means to check in with uh, the subcontractor to see that they're doing the work and to be the go-between between the client and myself. I wasn't subcontracting out in an efficient way at that time. Uh, at the agency, there was a, you know, a very high demand. I was doing the entrepreneurial thing. Like I was an entrepreneur at the agency and I, was doing a lot more than pay-per-click. I was handling a lot of contractors and I was given guidance on how to speak to them and how to use them as a resource and how to relay that info to the client and, you know, take notes and, um, you know, keep all the interested parties involved and um, send out bills and invoices. Okay, so, and so more to where, summarize where we are now. You, you started working for your mom's business. You, yeah. you, you were doing a bunch of random stuff, kind of the bookkeeping. You found out that you could, that somebody was making $200 an hour. So you kind of dipped your toe into that 
at $20 an hour for them. Then you started getting clients outside of them. And then you kind of went off on your own to right. be your own, you know, going that, that path. Then you decided to go to a, a normal company, a, you know, an agency and you learned, yeah. and you learned kind of what you didn't know when you were just kind of, you know, doing it on your own. How long did you work at the agency? What made you leave? And then, and then how did Blitzer change in the second iteration? So, um, the agency was really great. I, it was a great opportunity for me to fire all the clients that were holding me back that I probably wouldn't have given my ex, ex, myself an excuse to do. Um, I worked at the agency for a little over six months. Um, I wanted to be there for a whole year and to, to stay and then move to another agency and, you know, work my way up. So I'd finally be at Mullen Low, like one of the big name, you know, marketing firms. And, but sort of six months in, um, this was a small company. My boss at the time said, oh, and hey guys, you know, next month we're going to be reducing our, um, our, our contribution to your health insurance plan. And so I got like coming from entre entrepreneurship, I basically, I took that email. I was like, oh, we're giving you a pay decrease. And also, you know, like nothing in your you know, the responsibilities is changing. So I sent, sent my letter to, uh, sent an email to my boss at the time, like, what, you mean you're, you know, you're paying us less. So you're going to make it up in cash. And he sort of said, no, that's not a bad, it's not a good time for the company. And so I, I you know, started spending my time sort of re spinning things up again, you know, and um, as soon as that month rolled around, I put in my two weeks and I. So that notice gave you how, how much time did of notice was that that they gave, that they gave you that they told you that thing it was like a month and a week change or something like that and so it wasn't had, you had about five weeks to start clients you left you gave them two weeks notice you left how was blitzer now what was the difference between the first blitzer and the, and the second version of blitzer i, had I assume this is, that's what you did yeah it was this i i still had the company i still had the website i still had the yep. llc it hadn't been long enough for any of that stuff to dissolve yeah. So um, I I made it professional. I did my, you know, I got a business bank account at DCU, which is a digital credit union. And instead of going for a million small clients, I went for startups in Boston. And I went to get startup clients that were going to pay me money to be a strategist, to not just do pay-per-click, but to think about their marketing and to do their marketing plan and to build their guide or be involved in building their building their brand guide and their funnel and their email follow-ups. So I consulted with two startups right after I left the agency. I, I consulted with two startups or more, more appropriately named start downs. I learned a lot at the start downs. Those are my first clients, um, you know, coming out of the agency and, I feel like they benefited a lot from what I learned at the agency and from the skills that I put together. Um, I learned so much from those as like what not to do with the startup and what not to do with the company. And, um, and then, you know, six months later after those startups had failed, um, no fault of my own, um, I got back on Upwork and I nurtured my LinkedIn network and 
I had clients come back from, from a year previous that had give, given me another referral and I got a client through them. And then it was just sort of a natural build from that point where people were glad I was back. And some of my clients had just signed right up again with me and others sent me a referral. And yeah, I had a rough, you know, maybe three months, but uh, I got back up to roughly full time within a seven month period. And, um, you know, that's so what, kind of and what made you, what made you change? What made you decide that Blitzer needed to now be good, good now media? <laughs> so when I started Blitzer, I, I really like the name. It's B-L-T-Z-R. It's a five letter domain that's pronounceable or at least somewhat you could pronounce it maybe Blitzer or Baltazar. Um, I thought that was really clever and I'd been sitting on that five letter domain for a while. Um, it to me was somewhat like a tech techie startup style company name. So I really liked that and I thought it would appeal to tech startups and SaaSes that I wanted to work with. Um, truthfully, I ended up working with a lot more local services and the name was unpronounceable. Um, and you can't relay the name over the phone. It's B-L-T-Z-R. And so you end up going, that's B as in Bob, L as in Larry, T as in Tango, Z as in Zebra, and R as in... And so when you did this, when you started this new, this new entity and you started fresh, is that when you decided to kind of like change up how things, how things were working and how you were kind of going after the strategy because you had kind of previously bolted things together or now you've matured. And so in this fresh iteration, you could kind of reposition your offering in a new way that made more sense. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff that I had been doing informally as tack-ons for a client, I have written down exactly what I'm doing. And I've, I've been building the relationships in a very serious way for the past year that my subcontractors just accept the work when I send it to them. You know, I, my subcontractors now, the people that I've been building relationships are a little bit where I was five years ago. And they may never progress past that point, but they rely on me and I just send them good work and they don't have a contract with me and I pay them on time. And they most likely do not have an LLC or separate finances. They don't work with any other people. And I've developed these relationships to the point where I just send them work and I keep them busy enough that some of them don't depend on anybody else. Um, I mean, that's, that. that's very, very similar to how better legal is. You know, we have, we are essentially a team of contractors, you being one of them. And they range in people that do, you know, a handful of hours a month to people that work essentially, you know, 40 hours a week. They all kind of work on their own schedule. They, they, they do things around. We've talked about what is the best way to do things. But yeah, when I just send people work now, they just do it. And what's great about Upwork is I don't have to manage any of the bookkeeper or anything like that. I just trust they just is doing their, their, their work. Um, and I don't really have to spend my time doing that because that's just another thing that you've got to spend time doing and it takes more time out of your day, but having this system where you can just, um, you know, there are a couple of people we, I pay, you know, monthly at the end of the month, they just kind of give me their hours and I, 
you know, and I pay them, but, but yeah, it's a, it's an amazing system, not having the overhead and, and, and you, you end up having to pay less, but then you're getting people's full attention when they're working. You know, they're not sitting at a desk kind of twiddling their thumbs for eight hours a day. You're paying them for the actual work that they're doing. So you're able to pay them a higher rate, higher, higher right. hourly rate. So they're happy because they're getting paid for what they think their value is. You're happy because you're not having to commit to, you know, a full-time 40 hours a week person when you right. only really need 10 hours a week. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's jobs too. It's the thing is that these are all specializations. You know, you can't get, it's so hard to get someone like me who can do everything or like you, I can go in. So you, 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 chop, you chopped, you chopped up there. Say, can, you chopped up there. Can you say everything yeah. you just said one more time? I was going to say, and these are specialized jobs and a person like me or you who can do everything is so rare. And how our perceived value is, it, it's hard to get that person full time. I, I can make it on my own as a freelancer because I can do everything. And even more, I can make it as an agency because I know all this stuff so well and I stay on top of it. The reality is if you go and try and hire somebody, the incentives are not matched for that employee to bring all of their skills to the table, nor is it matched on the employer side for them to put out a call for somebody who has every single skill because they'd end yeah. up paying more. So yeah. I, you know, me knowing SEO and knowing pay-per-click and knowing Facebook ads and marketing strategy and emails and funnels and pixel integration and basic programming doesn't actually help me get an account manager job or a pay-per-click job. Like only pay-per-click helps me get a pay-per-click job at least. And I get that because yeah, if and I'm so, hiring, what, so what you, and, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I get it because if I'm hiring a contractor to do SEO and they tell me, oh yeah, I can also do Facebook marketing and pay-per-click. Well, I don't want to pay them any extra to know that stuff because I right. already do that. And I know someone who does that. So I get it. But so but yeah, I get a great it, deal. What, what the, what's nice though, is the broadness that we have allows us to vet and collaborate with the specialists. So like how yep. I mentioned earlier about how, you know, there's no way in hell I would ever be, you know, considered a, you know, full stack engineer or a developer in any way, shape or form. I do know enough to be dangerous and I can, you know, build breakable things, you know, right. but I also understand the architecture behind it. And so when I talk to the backend developer or the front end developer, I know how I want things organized. I know how I want things to work. I know how, what to test. I know what to look for. And so, yeah, it's, it's you know, and, and kind of the theme of this whole podcast, the journey that I'm trying to kind of, I'm starting to convey that I haven't really typed is, is the expose yourself to all of the different things like learn a little bit about everything. And so, so far we've learned about, you know, Tony doing, you know, being a hotelier sales support marketing. We've learned about my various different uh, backgrounds. We've learned about Hunter and, you know, doing, you know, coding and, and building chat software and, and doing the Airbnb thing. We've talked to, you know, Cody, who's a restaurateur. We've talked to Harlan, who's also a restaurateur, but he's more on the process side. Yep. We've talked to Allison, who, you know, does events. 
you who's doing online marketing. So we're getting this very broad range of experiences that we're getting to listen to and everybody's getting to kind of pick out the things that are interesting to them. And the next time they run into a problem, you know, if everybody is listening to all of the different episodes, when you run into a problem, you can kind of relate to, oh, I remember when someone said that, or I remember when someone said that. And so my recommendation to everybody is if you want to be kind of a jack of all trades and know a really broad range of stuff, once something interests you, spend an hour doing the research on it. Spend you know a couple hours doing the research on it. And that will pay dividends in the future because you know you Steve Jobs has this famous quote, and I hate quoting Steve Jobs because it's so cliche, but you know, he, he had this great speech, I think at Stanford, where he talks about connecting the dots. You know, he the reason the original Mac had different typography. If you remember before the Mac, every computer just had a monochrome screen and there was one font. Huh. And the Mac had different typefaces. And that was a totally new thing. Everybody was like, why would I want that? Why do I care? The only reason that the Mac had that was because he audited a calligraphy class in college. And so he was like, this is interesting. The Mac should have this. And so his point in, in, in the quote was, you can't connect the dots moving forward. You have to connect the dots moving backward. So yep. always... Wow, what a what an amazing way to go into look always be looking backward at all of your experiences, everybody else's experiences, and how you can kind of lasso all of that stuff together and pick out the juicy little tidbits here and there and use that to move forward and do innovative things or innovative thinking moving forward. So that's kind of the whole theme of this podcast that is, you know, kind of been evolving. But anyway, so Michael. It's been awesome. Um, yeah, you know, can I leave? I can I leave you with a, a, a nugget too that I, I think is is also really valuable? Yeah, and, and also give give us your give us your um, your domain name and, and how people can reach you. But yeah, what what do you what do you got? Uh, I am all about habits, positive habits, and a, a lot of people, business people, talk about wanting to improve their business and talk about wanting to improve their life or quality of life. And especially as the gig economy grows and remote work grows, the, the conversation around work-life balance um, enters the, the forefront. And, you know, in the modern world, we're constantly sacrificing quality of life to, to be more accountable to our boss or our work or our responsibilities. And one thing that I've realized is that people really respect you for having strong boundaries and habits that control your work life. And what I mean by that is if you can say, no, I'm not available because I'm doing a family thing, people actually appreciate that because they have their own things going on as well as a freelancer, something that HR does in the corporate world, but you have to do for yourself in, in your, your own personal relationships and freelance work and entrepreneurship. And people really respect that and respond to the person who knows how to find a balance and doesn't just say yes at midnight every single night. That's not a guy I trust to do quality work. If I send him a, a thought at 2 a.m. and he responds to me immediately. I, yeah. I like the go-getter attitude, but it's not somebody I would hire because I would find my habits moving towards his. And then the other well, point- what's nice, what's nice about, the, what's nice about the, the freelance kind of economy and how this whole system works is, 
you know, I send you Slack messages at midnight or two o'clock in the morning, whenever I'm just thinking or I'm doing stuff. And I, I do that to everybody. And, mm -hmm. and originally, you know, sometimes you respond because you happen to be up and that's fine. But like, I never serve immediately. Whereas like, you know, if you worked at a nine to five job, a boss might expect you to kind of hustle and, and get on there. But you know, all of our freelancers, all of our contractors, you know, if they say that they're off for two weeks or, Hey, you know, a lot of people travel, they work remotely. So they're, you know, Anton goes to Bangkok and or Thailand or wherever he goes. He, for like six months and he's like, Hey, I'm going to be out of touch for the next week. So like, let's not push anything really important. Um, and, and he's he kind of gives me that, for saying he, that. And he, and he gives me that heads up and you know what? Everybody does. Everybody gives me those, those heads up that there's holidays coming up. They're not going to be available, this and that. And, and it's kind of a mutual respect thing because they know that I'm not going to, I'm not going to freak out on them or I'm not going to force them to do anything, but it also gives them enough time to say like, okay, well, let's lock things down just in case, you know, things blow up. We want to make sure everything's like working really, really well when people are going to be out of touch. Just like when I went to Zion and the other, you know, last month and was totally out of touch. It was the first time I was out of touch with the business for five days ago. But so I agree. At the time, you're dealing with what I said. When, but you have to find those good contractors and you right. have to work with them. And sometimes when they don't work out, you just don't give them more work. But when you develop these relationships with people, you trust them, they trust you, they want to keep working with you. You want to keep working with them. So, you know, but when I send these Slack messages at 12 o'clock, you know, in the morning, sometimes when people first start working with me, they like respond. And I have to say, hey, just FYI, I use this channel here as just like my free flowing thoughts. So like, I am not expecting you to get to this instantly. This is just me like throwing something out there. If I need something now, I will say urgent, 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 please, where are you? And yeah. you know, when you're available, that's cool. But I think, I think in the, this contractor world, you just have to set those expectations that, you know, you want to work in an environment where you get to do, you get to kind of work where you want to work and how you want to work and when you want to work. And, and you expect other people to want that too. I want to work with people that are similar in and, style to me. And that's how I choose people. But Chad, this is what I want to get at is that you are unique. Like if for everyone listening to this podcast, Chad, knowing this stuff and being able to articulate it is particularly rare. Uh, in my experience that People say, pay lip service to this type of talk, but the reality is, is what they, when they have a fire to put out, they don't care that you're a contractor and you have a dozen other clients. They're sort of expecting a higher level of service immediately. So you have to be able to speak for yourself and set those boundaries and set the expectations before that comes up. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, I really like working with you, Chad, because you know this stuff already. But well, I had to I, learn. I appreciate that. Yeah. And the other part of that is is habits. Is that a, a, many people don't realize that the outcomes of our work and life are 100% correlated to our routines and our habits. And so, like, if you want to be known as the person who's available and reliable, then you have to have reliable habits. And that, for me, meant not traveling every six months, not being around. You know traveling around the world and being available in a consistent time zone and like making sure 
I'm always logged on at the same time and making sure I'm always checking my messages at the same time every day. And those habits have allowed me to just accommodate new work, you know, and, and to accommodate them into my positive habits. And that's like, you know, we all talk about this stuff. Going to the gym every day is great for your energy. You know, walking around, you know, the block if you need some thinking time. Little stuff like that. If you make it a habit, it becomes a hugely positive part of your day. You know, it's, it's interesting you say the, the, the walking thing. I, I was talking to someone recently about, you know, who was kind of down and depressed about something and we were just talking through something. And, you know, something I read in a book, and I forget which book it was, um, it might have been Stealing Fire. But the point was the, the taking a walk thing. You know, when you're feeling great and you're just, you're like, wow, it's beautiful outside. I feel great. Let's go for a walk. But when you're not feeling great, that's the time you should go for a walk. Right. That's the time you should go to the gym. That's not the time to sit on the couch and be mopey. Like you need to get the going and you need to get out in the world. You need to go grab a cup of coffee. You need to go see other people. You need to go walk around the, the trail. You need to go to the gym and work it out. It's, it's as if habits are a replacement for discipline. And once but, but, you have but you a should, habit, but you, should, but I you think don't the need difference. motivation. But I think the difference is then as a contractor, you can do that at one in the afternoon. Right. Whereas at work, you can't. When you're working for a company nine to five, if I'm not feeling good, I can't just get off out of my seat at 10 a.m. or 2 p.m. and go to the gym and have people just be okay with it. Right. As a, as a contractor or as a business owner, you can, when you need that, if you need to take a nap in the middle of the day because you're just tired, you don't power through it. You take a nap and then you feel better and you, and you work better, work. more efficiently later. So, and, and that's a, you know, you've been in the, you've been in the, in the contractor world for a really long time. I've come, you know, most of my career was in the nine to five, you know, working for Dell or pervasive where it's a corporation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times do these things feel guilty. I have longstanding kind of nagging guilt in the back of my head where it's like, you just took a two hour lunch or you just, you know, went to the gym at 2 PM. Like that's weird. Like you should feel bad about yourself. And, and it's, it's taken a long time to kind of, and I'm still grappling with it. You know, you got to be up and be in front of your computer and dressed at nine o'clock and, you know, or 10 o'clock and then work till this time or whatever. And that's just not reality. When you do things more fluidly, you do it when you feel good. You're like, I want to work on this project right now. And that's when you work on that project and you get so much more out of every minute working when you're feeling the flow and into it than if you're forcing yourself to sit at a computer. Right. It's not a whip cracking that's keeping you at the, it's, you know, a positive mindset. It's where you want to be. And so, yeah, well, I really appreciate, you know, you letting me give that nugget. You know, I think habit being a, a great, improving your habits is a great way to, to increase, you know, your value to yourself and uh, to your employers and clients and things like that. Um, so, yeah, thank you for having me on. If you people, where can people find you? What's, what's your domain? You know, it's, so you mentioned Blitzer is, is a weird domain name, but so now you've got Goodnow Media. So how do you spell that? <laughs> Goodnow Media. It's goodnow.com. It's G-U-D-N-O-W.com. So if, if you, you want to reach out to them, you can. 
Um, just don't steal them too much because we also need them. Um, but thank you, th- Michael. Thank you so much for for taking the time. This has been this has been you know it's probably the longest episode we've we've got. But I think we got to you know this is interesting because it's an introduction. This is the first time I'm interviewing someone that works with me. It's a bit of a technical like on a, intro on a too, day to day basis. Say that again. It's a bit of a technical intro too. You got a primer on pay per click at the beginning. Yeah, this is this has been a different type of episode, but I I like it. You know, we kind of bounced around a little bit. It felt a little disorganized at the beginning, but I think we kind of yeah. found our path and 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 successfully completed uh, you know what we were looking for. But yeah, so to everybody listening, thanks again. Uh, appreciate you sharing or or giving us a rating review. We constantly are trying to improve things so that, you know, I'm learning as I go. And so I want to hear from you. You can, you know, leave a constructive criticism as a, as a rating review on, you know, your podcast of choice, your podcast platform of choice. Um, and you can share it with, with others, you know, the way that I grow and the way that the, the subscriber base grows, that I can have, you know, a bigger audience and get more interesting people, not nothing against you, Michael, but you know, kind of a broader range of people is by sharing this and making this a a, a wider audience. So again, thank you to everybody that's been loyal. Um, Michael, thanks again. And this is Chad Sakonchik from Looking Backwards signing off. That was good.